John chapter 19, we're going to be starting in verse 16. This is God's Word. It's written a long time ago, but it was written for you today, specifically in mine. So he, Pilate, delivered Jesus, him, over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he said to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came, broke the legs of the first, and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth that you may also believe. For these things took place 
that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask your blessing upon your word. That the full force of the reality this is describing might hit us. That we might understand and comprehend just a little bit better the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. I love sports. And you hear phrases thrown in sports all the time like, well, he's a cancer in the locker room. He's a, he's a locker room cancer. In fact, actually, there was a big trade yesterday in basketball land. Uh, and really curious to see how it's going to work because a guy got traded who has traditionally not been a great locker room guy to a room, uh, to another team that's filled with not great locker room guys. And it's fun to see how the cancers are going to work to each other. Ah. <laughs> Do you ever think about the fact that I just thought the word cancer casually? Nobody blinked once, did they? Cancer, that gruesome disease that eats you from the inside out. For those of you that have watched loved ones waste away with it, cancer is a terror. It is a horror. It is an atrocity. Yet, the way we have chosen to deal with it as a society is to reduce it to a locker room disgruntledness. You see, this is one of the things that we do as people when we are confronted with realities that we do not like. Realities that are gruesome and gripping. Realities that kind of tear our minds apart. The easiest way for us to deal with them is to make light of them, to inundate ourselves with them, to make them boring. I mean, think about how we do this with movies. An entire genre of movies exists to take the scare of death away. Because I've been scared thousands of times before, so that when it comes time to think about death, well, I don't have to think about death because I've got all of these other things that have desensitized me to it, that have made me numb, that have made it feel small and boring and simple. 
Using another illustration, it's, it's like open wounds. Our body doesn't like open wounds, and the body is designed to work to try to close them. If I had a giant open wound on my forearm right now, I would not be, one, a happy camper because it would hurt like mad. But two, it's not designed to stay open. The body's going to be trying to have its cells knit it together. It may need stitches. It may need a Band-Aid to help. But the body itself wants to close it up. And our minds and our souls do the same thing. We don't like open wounds. And the problem with a passage like this is that it's designed to remain an open wound forever. It's designed to be shocking. It's designed to be unpleasant and unappealing. It's designed to be offensive. It's part of why I like, oh, come and mourn with me a while. I mentioned it a second ago. That hymn's hard to sing for us. The timing's a bit off. I want to sing the next note when I'm not supposed to. And it makes me think and it makes me engage and it forces me to wrestle with the reality of what I'm singing. John here tells the story of the death of Christ in a similar fashion. It's off-putting, it's gruesome, and it's designed again to kind of grab you by the cheeks and pull you into the story. But it's told with John's special flair. It's told with his personality. It's told with his agenda. You remember it's a sermon that he himself is preaching. And he's actually bringing to conclusion a story that he started in John chapter 1. How he began with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And many of us have that passage quite familiar to us. And we understand that he explains Jesus is God. Jesus is the agent of creation. He is the one who has stepped into the world as the light of God, and the world has constantly rejected him. And he builds to 14, the word became flesh. He dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is God himself. A plan planned before the earth was ever created is now being enacted. It's being brought to the climax, this great plan of redemption. And John highlights that for us. John does something as he tells this story. He doesn't just walk us through the crucifixion. He, in fact, leaves out a lot of details the other guys include. He does one thing specifically, though, before I call your attention to before we get into the passage. He explains step by step how the death of Christ is the fulfillment of prophecy. In fact, almost every sentence in here, he's actually referencing the Old Testament, which is interesting because he doesn't do that throughout the entirety of the book. But for this section, he is full on in Old Testament mode. As we step into the story, we find out in verse 16, Pilate, who hated the Jews, who's rejected the Jews, who recognizes that Jesus is innocent, has finally caved. 
the Jews ask for this rebel, a murderer, uh, Barabbas to be released. And so Pilate's finally like, whatever, man, I'm done with you people. I'm so over you. I'm tired of you. Whatever you want, just stop talking. I know he's innocent, but I really don't care anymore. So in 16, he turns Jesus over to his soldiers. We know uh, elsewhere, this is the point where they beat him a second time. And you remember, there were two types of beatings that the Romans gave. One was the small, designed to make you miserable type of beating. The second was the big, designed to make you dead kind of beating. And this is what he gets. He used a flail, a handle with rope, leather, Pieces of bone and stone stuck in the leather so that when it hits, it doesn't just slap, it grabs and tears and effectively pulls the back off the person. A person who would go through that would most likely die of infection if they managed to survive the blood loss, if they managed to survive the shock. It was designed to make you dead. And here we have already the Lord of glory undergoing such abuse from those whom he is sustaining while they do it. He's the one keeping their hearts beating as they cease to stop his, or as they intend to stop his. Beating completed, mocking completed, torture completed, they force him to carry his cross. Again, we know from the other authors, he's forced to carry it outside the camp. And it's significant that he goes outside the camp because that is where unclean things exist. You'll do something like this in the city because this is something that even the Romans knew was unclean. It was filthy. It was disgusting. It was revolting and it was off-putting. And here the Lord of life becomes revolting and off-putting for a reason. Lord Jesus being weak from blood loss. Weak from his beating, weak from his abuse, weak from his all-night prayer vigil, and then turned arrest, is unable to carry the cross. And they conscript the guy in the crowd. Carry his cross for him. At which point they take him out to Golgotha, the place of the skull. We don't know why it's called that, just so you know. And they crucify him with... Two others, one on either side, and already we see Pilate's mischievous hatred at work as he intends to shame the Jews. He takes the Lord Jesus, who he knows is king of the Jews. He said that he has, he agrees with him in some sense, and he crucifies him with common murderers. Common thieves, common criminals. Now you have to understand when we say he was crucified with common criminals, there's a, a bit of backstory there. Crucifixion was terrible. It was wretched. It's, I I think, probably one of the single most mischievous and evil ways devised to kill a person. Nails through the wrists and hands, nails through the feet, and then when they dropped it in, it dislocated the shoulders. And so the only way that a person could breathe to get their diaphragm to actually be able to expand was to stand up on their feet, which were nailed to the cross. So to take your ankle bones 
and to stand on the nails running through them. Couldn't pull yourself up because your shoulders are dislocated. To get enough room for your diaphragm to expand for air to get sucked in and then and push the air right back out. It's a terrible, terrible way to die. In fact, so gruesome, Rome itself said, we can't even do this to our own citizens. This is only allowed to be done to slaves. It's too bad to do to our own people. And when Rome says something is too bad, you know it's really bad. Pilate, shaming the Jews, attempting to shame Jesus, places him in a a mechanism of death that is only regarded for slaves, is only regarded for the worst of the worst, and puts him in between two what we would call common criminals. But in this day, we would know these are the worst that people can be. The message he's spreading to the Jews is, look at your king. He's a king who's become evil. How prophetic. Pilate the fool executing the Lord Jesus is displaying exactly what's taking place. That the Lord of glory on the cross is taking on the sins of his people. He's taking on the sins of all of his people through all time. It's appropriate that he dies with criminals because at this point, for the only time in history, he is one. Again, Pilate, seething with hatred for the Jews, he hates the people he governs. Puts a sign above uh, Jesus' head. We know the whole thing of it reads, This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And again, Pilate the fool is prophetic. He could not have crafted a more accurate statement. He is Jesus. He's man. He's from Nazareth. He's a man. He is king of the Jews. He is God. Obviously done to despise the Jews, to hate the Jews, to shame the Jews, to make them angry. And of course, they read it. It's written in all the languages. The whole crowd would see it. Oh my goodness, everybody would know it. So they go to Pilate and be like, seriously, man, you can't say that. And he's like, I've read, I've written what I've written. It's done. The man has spine for the first time of his life and in doing so, again, functions as a prophet for God, articulating the truth exactly right. And John, who's standing near the cross, cuts now to an aside, to a a, a little thing taking place kind of off to the edge that would have only been known to those who were able to watch it. This neat little thing that we get it because someone's there. And he explains the soldiers. There were four soldiers who did this. And part of the way that they were paid was they got to split the possessions of the man they executed. And most likely, we know from commentators at this time in history and everything, most likely your average Jew at this point, male, would have had five articles of clothing. His undergarments, his long robe, his sandals, his headgear, and his kind of tunic thing. And they're able to split four of them amongst the four of them just easily, but there's the fifth one, the expensive one, the one very nice thing that they can't do anything with. They don't want to tear it, and so they say, you know what, let's gamble for it. Let's see. Let's draw lots. Let's see who gets it. We don't want to tear it apart because that would ruin the value of it. Let's, let's gamble for it. And John, again, here, clues us in again. 
This king of the Jews who was prophesied before any of us were born. Now is fulfilling scripture in verse 24. They divided my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. Highlighting, calling to our attention. There's something else going on here than a simple murder. There's something else happening in the background. We're not entirely sure yet. We are entirely sure, but he hasn't called attention to it yet. And 24, again, telling in such kind of gripping fashion, he cuts from the soldiers, the end of verse 24, he cuts from the soldiers who were gambling for Jesus' clothing off to the side while a naked Jesus is on the cross to Jesus' mother standing before him. And how horrible. How horrible for any parent to have to watch their child die. But for her, particularly as she knows who he is, she believes in him, she understands him, even though all of the other siblings don't yet. They don't care, they don't trust in him yet. They will, but they don't yet. Standing at the foot of the cross, looking up at her poor baby boy turned savior in her mind, being murdered in front of her. And John captures the righteousness, the tenderness, the faithfulness, the compassion of the Lord Christ perfectly as right there in that moment while Christ is dying, while he's suffering the wrath of God on the cross, still his thoughts are not about himself. And looking down at the four women in front of him and the apostle John Jesus looks at his mother and says, and again, it's significant here. He doesn't call her mom. Because in this moment, she stopped being his mom. You realize that she's not his mom at this moment. He's not her son. He's his savior. He's her savior. He, He is on the cross looking out for his mother as he's in process of paying for her sins. And he says, woman, look, now I'm going to take care of you physically the same way I'm taking care of you spiritually. You now have a new son to look after you. In a world that doesn't have Medicare and Medicaid, that doesn't have fancy retirement and banks to save up in, your children were your longevity. They were the ones who took care of you in your old age. And here, Jesus assigns his mother a believer to a believing child instead of her unbelieving children. Woman, behold your son. Again, she has other ones, we know. They're converted. One of them runs the church for a two decades. But instead, he gives her a believing one right now. And what does she do in verse 27? From that hour, she moved into his home. He took care of her. John becomes her baby boy who's taking care of her. We think most likely uh, he was already probably her nephew anyways, but fun to think about. In fact, actually, we sang it in O Come and Warn with me a while. There's seven things that Jesus says on the cross, and there's this tremendously interesting interchange with it. The first three are focused on others. It's focused on dealing with the other thieves. It's focused on dealing with his mom. And the final three are focused on him kind of dealing with death. But there's a middle one that is a major turning point. 
And 28, after this, Jesus, knowing all was now finished, said, oh yeah, by the way, to fulfill scripture, I thirst. And the soldiers standing there, full of hatred and bile, feed him vinegar. Awesome. Great. Thanks for that. That's helpful. And John, I, I think probably, I mean, there's no way to tell this story any better than what he does in 28, 29, 30. It's astonishing how just awkwardly it ends. After this, Jesus, knowing all that was now fulfilled, said to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they gave him a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch held to his mouth. When Jesus said, uh, when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it's finished. He bowed his head and he died. He gave up his spirit. Just, just crashes to an end. And we note a couple of things just as we we go through this. First off, John has been telling us from chapter 1 to be reminded that God is in control of the story. You remember even in the garden when Jesus is interacting with Judas who has betrayed him. He's interacting with the the high priest and even the Roman guards. He's forcing the issue so that his plan would be accomplished. And now even at the most gruesome part of his death, John is highlighting Jesus is in control. Calling for a drink that Jesus himself knew would fulfill scripture. It's intentional. Recognizing that it's finished, he ends with that. He bows his head and he gives up his spirit. It's interesting, again, the verbiage of how John says it. Knowing it's all completed, they finally killed him, didn't they? No, they didn't. Who's the actor here? Who's the one in charge? Who's the, the grammar, just the basic grammar? Who's the subject of the sentence? He, Jesus, gave up what? His spirit. He He, he died. Because he chose to. It's on his own terms. He's in charge. He's accomplishing his perfect plan. Fulfilling scripture. Fulfilling the plan of God. Fulfilling the promises. And now John in verses 31 through 37 kind of gives us flavor text on the side. It was the day of preparation before the Sabbath, and this Sabbath was the big deal. It was the Sabbath of the Passover. This was the high holiday for all of the Jews around the world for their entire calendar year. So the Jews are like, let's get this thing happening. So they go to Pilate and say, can we hurry this up? Can we speed it up a little? Because normally crucifixion, this terrible way to die, could last anywhere from a few hours to a few days. And so the way they speed it up is by taking a giant hammer. We actually have the actual Latin documented on this. We know exactly what it is. And it'll crack their shins. Because remember, how do they breathe? Well, they stand up on those ankles to get the diaphragm to expand. And if you break the legs, suddenly dislocated shoulders and shattered shins makes it very hard to get air in. So they break the legs of the two guys next to him and they get to Jesus and they're like, um, he gone. He's done. He's gone. He's dead. We didn't think that he would die that fast, but he's, he's already dead. Well, we better double check it to make sure. And so they take a spear and they stick it into him and he's definitely dead. 
in fulfillment of Scripture. Verse 35, John makes it clear. He who saw it, I saw it. I was there. I was standing a few feet from it. I know exactly what happened. I can tell you. I know I'm telling the truth. And the whole purpose is so you would believe it happened too. Oh yeah, by the way, 36. It's also so scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones would be broken. Let's fulfill all the Psalms. Let's fulfill Deuteronomy. Let's, let's fulfill all of the scriptures. How about that? Right now on the cross, let's just fulfill them all. Except for the resurrection ones. Those are going to happen in just a little bit. In 38, we get pulled in now to the rest of the story. We get to see God's people become transformed after the death of Jesus. And now two cowards stop being it. First time ever, we, it's kind of staggering. Again, we recognize the only ones who really hold the line and excel through this whole process are a whole bunch of faithful women and then John. But now we have something different. Joseph Joseph of Arimathea, a disciple of Jesus, but he's secretly afraid of the Jews. He's a very wealthy man. He's a part of the Jewish leadership, actually. He and Nicodemus have been scheming. They've both been following Jesus privately and quietly, but they've been afraid of the Jews. They've been afraid of persecution. And now they recognize it's time to tip their hand. And Joseph, being wealthy, said, I will take care of him in his death. And Nicodemus, being wealthy, said, I will take care of him in his death. And so Joseph goes to Pilate. He asks for the body. Pilate gives it. Nicodemus shows up with the burial spices and wraps, 75 pounds of spices. Joseph purchases the tomb. It's supposed to be his tomb. In fact, it's the tomb he's going to be buried in not terribly long after. And so, again, Scripture is fulfilled that Jesus is buried with a rich man in his death. And so these men with a group of faithful women get the body of their Savior And they start wrapping and they wrap the body and then they put spices and they wrap and put spices and wrap and put spices and wrap and put spices. And they take it in the tomb and they lay it down in the little alcove. They take a giant stone over the front of it. They put a wax seal around it. They put guards at the door and the story ends there. Well, it doesn't end, but the sermon's going to end there. I want us to take away two things. One is the the design of this passage, the way it's written in all the Gospels, particularly in John and Luke, it's designed to make you sick to your stomach. It's the whole point, actually is to think of the Lord Jesus, the Lord of life, undergoing that most miserable and gruesome and unjust of deaths. And it's designed to be an object lesson so that when you think of him on the cross with his back being torn off, bleeding to death, having had to just carry a heavy cross, shoulders dislocated, barely struggling to breathe, to understand that is not one one trillionth of the difficulty he's undergoing on the cross. You need to understand that him on that cross, suffering with dislocated shoulders, suffering, bleeding to death, back being torn off, wrists and uh, ankles being nailed together, standing up on broken ankle or on uh, uh, pierced ankles, that is the easy part of his day. 
Because the part that John's actually building to, the part that all the Gospels are building to, is to know what else is happening behind the scenes. And it's this. That when he goes to that cross and suffers so miserably in his physical suffering, it's infinitely worse spiritually. As the sins of all of his people all time are placed upon him and the wrath of God is being poured out on him. You see, the wrath of Rome is an object lesson. The wrath of the Jews is an object lesson. It's designed to say, understand how bad it was that they were angry. Now think how much infinitely worse that God was angry with him. When we say the creed, we refer to this portion as this summary statement of, he descended into hell. He doesn't doesn't go into hell. It's on the cross. He suffers the totality of the wrath of God. All of God's anger for sin is poured out on him on the cross. I thirst. No kidding. You just endured all of God's wrath. You have to be wrecked. I mean, I get thirsty if I cut the grass. How do you think your body's going to process the totality of God's wrath for all of his people in the brief span of just a few hours? You've undergone it all. I love how John tells it. So it's it's just so abrupt at the end. It's finished. What's finished? I mean, is it his suffering on the cross? That's finished? Is it, is it his life is finished? Oh, it's finished and he died. Well, those are really weird last words. Is that what it's talking about? I mean, is this like another one of those like, oh, people's funny last words where they, oh, wow, how awful. It's, well, had a good run and that's it. What is he talking about? He's talking about the wrath of God. He's talking about his mission. Look, this terrible thing that's happening, which is pointing to something far more terrible that you can't understand, that the one who is the Lord of life who has existed in heaven from before time existed, that one now is undergoing hell on the cross. Oh, yeah, by the way, hell is now finished. It's all done. That's what's finished. The payment for sin, the the demand that evil requires, that's finished. All of your punishment for sin, that's finished. That thing that you feel bad for having done 18 million times and you're like, I've been confessing this to the Lord for 40 years. That is finished on the cross. John tells it so that we're kind of dumbstruck. Again, it's like a little you know, pop in the nose that makes your eyes water instantly. We think, man, I, I can't believe this is happening. And then the whole time interspersing, the second thing to highlight is that this is the fulfillment of Scripture. This has been the plan from the beginning. It's supposed to happen this way. It's supposed to happen this way. It's supposed to happen this way. It's supposed to happen this way so that we sitting here can go, I seriously can't believe it. And I've heard it a hundred times. What do we do with it? I mean, what do we do with a passage like this? I mean, it's 
awkward and uncomfortable, it's gruesome and dark and bleak, what, what do we do with this? Well, one is we extend the good news out of this. It's important to understand when, we, when he says it is finished, it means that sin, the payment for sin is finished. And it's from this moment forward that the good news can be extended to anyone. This is what we've been talking about all service. It's what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 18 through 31. It seems foolish to the world to say that on a cross at the hands of Rome, a man could pay for all of your sins, but it's true. And if you need your sins forgiven, this is the man to do it. Because the only other options are you pay for your sins or him pay for your sins. Which do you wish? And he gives freely. First thing we do with this is we believe it, we receive it. If if we don't understand yet, this is yours. It's for you to receive that Jesus has died, that you might be forgiven in freedom. No cost, no payment, freely given to you. Secondly, for those of us that know we are forgiven, we've walked with the Lord for many years, I would suggest you probably have grown calloused. And it's time to get those calluses off. It's time to get that hard heart to break again, to be softened with tears, to be softened with newness of life, to grow again. If you fall in that category, you need to go home. You spend some time in prayer. Ask the Lord for help. Go back and read the words to O Come and Mourn with me a while. It will melt you because it's beautiful. And lastly, is that we can walk away with confidence. Yeah, we sang all the funeral hymns this week. We're not going to next week. (laughs) In fact, we don't most weeks. Why? Because we have confidence. How do we know that Jesus is telling the truth? Because every promise is fulfilled. We got Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of promises that he's fulfilling, like boom, 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 all on the cross. His promises are trustworthy because he's already shown that they are. And so we can go live in freedom and newness of life. We don't have to live in guilt and shame and sorrow because he's already handled all of that. We have freedom and joy because his promises are yes and amen. May it be that we today would have freedom and joy in him. Let's pray. Father, forgive us. We know we've grown callous to this and hard. We ask that you would forgive us for our sin and we thank you that we can have forgiveness because Jesus has already paid for it. God, we ask that you would soften our hearts, particularly those of us that have hard hearts right now. Maybe it's been a while since we've grown spiritually or think that we have. Maybe we uh, just, we know we need it. Give us help, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.